Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, you're listening to Popcorn Pals. In this episode, we're joined by KT and OT from For Your Reference Podcast, where we're discussing The Little Mermaid. I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff, and this is Popcorn Pals, a popcorn podcast with Lee and Tim spinoff, where I'll be joined by a rotation of movie-loving legend guest hosts to discuss the latest and greatest new big screen releases. It's the same salty fun with some new flavors. And this is the inaugural Popcorn Pals, and I could not be more excited to have two of my fave pals, KT and OT, with me from For Your Reference Podcast. Hey, guys. Hello. How you doing? Hello, our number one friend and lover, Tim. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I've just been waiting for the day that you call me your friend and lover. That's it. We're going to stop the episode now. That's all we need to talk about. <laughs> We're going to jump into talk about The Little Mermaid, which I'm really, really excited about. So before we do that, let me just give who's who in the zoo and a little synopsis on the film. So The Little Mermaid is the latest live action remake from Disney, reimagining the 1989 Oscar-winning animated classic about a young mermaid Ariel who makes a deal with Ursula the Sea Witch to trade her beautiful voice for human legs so she can discover the world above water and impress a prince. The Little Mermaid is directed by Rob Marshall of Chicago, Into the Woods, and also Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides fame. The Little Mermaid has a story and screenplay by David McGee that's based on John Musker's 1989 film adaptation. The Little Mermaid stars Halle Bailey, Jonah Howard King, Melissa McCarthy, Javier Bardem, David Diggs, Jacob Tremblay, Aquafina, and Noma Damaswini. I first want to ask you both a two-part question because before we dive into our critique of this mm-hmm. film, I want to know what your relationship with the 1989 animated version is and what were your expectations going into the live-action remake? So I remember loving The Little Mermaid growing up. Mm. Uh, there was this short animated series as well, which I watch it religiously. You were deep into mermaid lore. I was. Wow. I was. <laughs> so I think part of me sort of forgot because it's been years. I forgot what it was all about, the mm. core of it at least. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to expect from this. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of outrage because of the casting and all that nonsense. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go and watch this. I, I didn't initially plan to, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to go watch this and I'm going to have fun with it. And well... We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but I was really, I really love the original and it, it's something that I grew up with. And yeah, it holds a special part in me being a kid and just having these weird imaginations. I love that, OT. What about you, Katie? It wasn't my top tier Disney animated films, I must say. So definitely not a super fan. You're not going to see a cut of me at the end of the film. Maybe OT is a merman. <laughs> who knows? At the end of the film. It was like Mulan, Lion King. I definitely watched The Little Mermaid, but I definitely didn't remember the notes. And unfortunately or fortunately, we didn't get time to watch the animated leading up to this. Mm. So things that might be new or might not be new might have 
have helped or might not have helped. But yeah. um, I was definitely in for a good time. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, just on that point about having watched the original recently, so you have another perspective to compare the remake. There is good and bad to that. Mm. I did that. I watched the animated film about two days before I sat down and watched the remake. And so I had a lot of direct, really particular comparisons that I took away from watching the remake. But having said that, you also need to watch this film as a standalone, Mm. see whether it works from a character story perspective, a visual perspective, all those things. So I'm keen to, I guess, understand that the balance of things between my viewing experience and yours. But before I want to share my relationship with The Little Mermaid, because apparently, so my dad tells me that kind of similar to UOT, I loved the animated film. So I would always demand that The Little Mermaid was the film that was put on. And so much so that that, I guess, mild childhood obsession filtered into my adult life where my sister had a Disney-themed 21st birthday party and I went as Ariel. Yes! Insert (laughs) clip. Insert photo here. Insert clip. That's it, the photo. Oh, that's when I had abs. So it was quite a long time ago. And uh, Ariel's never looked trashier. I got so drunk that night. It was atrocious. So I don't think she would have kept her Disney princess mantle if you'd seen footage of me from that night. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> she was she was definitely living her best like a socialite life. As soon as she got those legs, she wasn't waiting for Metaverse. She got her legs. She was out. <laughs> she was having a good time. <laughs> she was. She got a taste of, of the 21st birthday party world that is Australia. <laughs> that's for sure. And then my friend Pete recently photoshopped me on a rock as Ariel for my birthday that was a couple of weeks ago so insert other clip here (laughs) (laughs) we're all about the inserting clips here all right so let's talk about the remake here Mm -hmm. because I guess from a snapshot perspective the movie features new scenes and it explores character more from their culture in their background especially around Ariel and Eric and building out the world and their relationship how did you feel about the story in general what what did it offer you guys it felt like an extended um offering of the Bridgerton universe like it was like <laughs> you get it right as soon as I say it yes. you understand exactly what I'm saying it felt very Bridgerton right yeah there's this disconnect right it's the 19th century and it's supposedly in the Caribbean. We mm. have a black queen who has English accent. Mm. Everyone else has a Caribbean accent. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> it, it was sort of disjointed. I was like, okay, so he has Eric, who's adopted, of course, and he wants to export. He wants to, to you know, trade with, with the different yeah. countries. Uh, what exactly are you trading? Um, <laughs> w- w- what are we going to be taking out out of, out of the Caribbean in the 19th century yeah. and all that? Yeah, it, it felt weird. It this felt isn't weird. the woman king, OT. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> the embers, the yeah. embers of it, the embers of it. But I absolutely agree with you because I don't think anyone was expecting it to go so deep. But when you would have... You know, we're not going into like specific dialogue and not spoiling it, but they will talk about themes of us versus them, you know, humans mm-hmm. on land, the mermaid, merman, mer race underwater. There was a lot of us versus them sort of commentary, which got a bit confusing. And again, I don't think anyone was asking for that commentary. And when it becomes confusing and then you try and understand, I guess also if you have this question of like, who was the audience age wise? Like, yeah. Who was this audience for? Because we, I happen to notice Tim, the back of his head, which I guess is maybe it's too much of a friend and lover problem. Um, <laughs> but we ended up being in the same screening and there were kids there yeah. as well. Mm. So like even trying to understand like what the audience was. So you know, we recently started watching American Born Chinese, which is a Disney Plus show that just came out. Mm-hmm. And it's also able to layer that same level of heavy themes, but it does it in a way that makes sense. Sorry, we're for your reference. So we <laughs> every now and then. It's Disney, though. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that that layering of messaging no one asks for. And if you're going to do it, it was done in a very confusing way. Yeah. OK, I got the ask versus them bit. But they're talking about humans destroying the reef, but they're giving mm. examples of them 
sinking. Uh, you know, the boat sinking. What, what would we have? How would they prevent? How would be the one example of them destroying the reef be? Oh, this guys are just sinking and dying on the reef. Bloody hell. F them. 100%. <laughs> That, that element actually frustrated me yeah. a bit because this is where they were trying to put their finger in too many pies. Mm. They threw in that environmental angle, which, I mean, it's it's a film set in and around the ocean. It makes sense yeah. that there was an environmental angle, but it came tainted because they were getting pissed off that a shipwreck was destroying the coral underneath the ocean. Uh, but you can't control the shipwreck. Oh, unless you're King Daddy Triton and you could maybe control the ocean to help the ship not wrecking and then therefore destroying the coral underneath that you and your daughters are so pissed about. So I think they were trying to be a little woke there and being the environment and coral, don't the humans understand we hate them, but they actually could have helped the scenario because of their (laughs) powers under the sea. But this is interesting. Because I feel like the environmentalism was addressed better in The Little Mermaid than it was in Avatar 1 and 2. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Please unpack well, that Well, there, there was a certain part of dialogue with one of the older sisters and she said something to the effect of, this is going to take thousands of years mm-hmm. for the reef to repair itself. And I'm like, yes, let's do it. Let's get into it. This is great. And the king is obviously, you know, saying he's, he's literally daddy of the sea. Um, I like the way it was tackled there. It's so interesting because I think that was pretty cool. Yeah, but all the other stuff, I was like, hmm, a a bit overly ambitious. Well, it's gonna take thousands, thousands of years for the reef to repair itself, but it's because there's a shipwreck on it. Like he could have controlled it not to wreck the reef. Oh, so it's their own self-determination is what you're saying. Okay, cool. It's something that humans could not help themselves. <laughs> cool. It's not like we can go to the sea and be like, oh, we're not going to wreck today. You were having conflicts. <laughs> well, that coral looks particularly wreckable. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just want to unpack that a bit more because it's it's interesting, KT, that you say that the environmental angle, mm. you resonated with that. And then you're talking about the us and them OT that, that we were talking about earlier. That starts playing into the film right at the beginning yeah. when the ship crew are talking about superstitions about mer people and the sea king and the oceans and things. For me, it's also only referenced a few times, but it's never explored in any detail. And Katie, you said that, oh, it's interesting that they went that way. Were we asking for it? But they referenced it, mm-hmm. right? They, they were talking about it. But then despite its two hours and 15 minute runtime, Oof. you would think that there was enough space to develop a new layer to the story because they're just trying to do too much. And I thought it was a real missed opportunity to maybe weave into some lore, maybe some past things that had happened between mer people mm-hmm. and the human world that I, that I felt was just lacking, was lacking here. Interesting. I think the main thing with filmmaking for me is intention. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem pretentious that they were talking about environmentalism because like you say, Tim, by default, they would address that in some shape or form because they were underwater. I like that they had dialogue that didn't necessarily hold humans, whether in this world or, you know, in, in the real life sort of world. It didn't necessarily hold people accountable, but it was like, hey, this like your lack of trying to destroy in any way is still going to have lasting sort of impacts under the sea. This is what's great about what you take away as an audience member about a film. But just to build on that a little further, how you say that, you know, there were there were kids in this movie, mm. right? And they're also adults. Who who do you actually think they were targeting the movie towards, if that's a loaded question or not? I don't think they had that clear in mind. They just thought they'd do a remake of this or imagining of it and you know the audience that grew up on it will go watch it because of nostalgia or the kids who love little mabin now will go in and see oh there it is there's, mm. there's something new but it missed the mark completely i think on both audiences because me watching this nostalgia only played a big part you know yeah. the movie was so long and the pacing felt really off mm. by the half of it i was like oh my god what, who, who is this for yeah. It was already lost on me. I don't think we even saw Asala and Ariel interact for the first hour. You know, yeah. like that just felt yeah. <laughs> like, what is going on? And, and to your point, Tim, it's not that they even added any, they even explored any law per se. It was just Ariel being, oh, I just want to be, uh, I just want to go on land. Oh, I can't believe this. 
Did you have a drunken 21st night as Ariel too? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> and that's what, like, it, it just felt really disjointed. And I think if they focus solely on not adding anything new to the movie and just, you know, rehashing and making this, oh, the exploration of the sea and all that, which I thought some aspects of it was was good. And I thought also when the shark was going after Ariel, I was like, oh, that scene was scary. I remember, I remember that scene. But in this, it just felt really murky. I was like, uh-huh. That's how it you was... know they're villains when they're like, when they look ugly. <laughs> you were not supposed to like that shark. Like it was very dark. It felt very Game of Thrones final episode. I'm like, oh, come on. I want to yeah. see this. Yeah. I want to enjoy. That was something I was going to bring up later on in the episode, which was the overall aesthetic in the film. Mm. But, but I might talk about it now because I actually think, OT, to your point, it impacts the experience of the film and how the layers of the the story ladder into that. So I had a real issue with the with the color palette of the film. Just like you said, that it was really murky under there. I think that the darkness and the dullness of the overall look of the film was a similar issue that Black Panther were kind of forever had to tackle with in their underwater elements because they're trying to be too authentic and real which I appreciate, but it's dark under the sea, right? And the, the Little Mermaid should have been a more vibrant, colourful experience. Am I wrong? No, 100%. I think there was more that could have been done. Like, And I think this is what they tackle when they do live action adaptations of the movie. I remember you felt mm. a disconnect when watching Lion King, whereas I was like, oh. okay, I could sort of disassociate myself from all that and just yeah. enjoy it based off my nostalgia alone and that carried me through the whole movie but it, neither does nostalgia a film make ot <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we come to things like pacing and all that where it can feel as if we're moving towards a certain goal quite quickly and efficiently rather than lingering without adding any much value you know, mm. and that's when you can start being like, okay, I can forgive certain aspects of it and enjoy it. And nostalgia will carry you through most of it. <laughs> I'm very nostalgic. And that's why we have a four-year reference podcast, because a lot of the times we speak about just from things that we love from, you know, yeah, and all that. So when it comes to like the underwater scenes, they were colorful when they were intentional about it. Yeah. And then every other time, any sort of just normal sort of scene. Mm -hmm. It, it wasn't like intentional or purposeful in how they wanted to, I guess, sketch the story of. Yeah, I agree. From my perspective, OT, I agree with you. I love nostalgia, but it also has to do with a tone thing. Yeah. You have literal talking fish and crabs <laughs> and mermaids, right? This world isn't real. So don't try and make it feel too real. So I think they need to lean into the fantasy a bit more and honor the vibrant animated roots that this film is based on. Yeah. So I'm on your side of the fence with this OT. Oh, yeah, those hey, aspects. I agree w too. When it started, I expected David Attenborough to just start popping <laughs> up with his with his narrative, you know. <laughs> and here we're going to look at the crab and, you know. Like, like yeah. even as adults, like, do we not deserve colorful joy? Like, can we get some nice sort of scenes? And if this is for, like, younger audiences, I find myself getting bored looking underwater. So I can only imagine how the lack of stimulation color-wise does for a younger sort of yeah. audience. Yeah, unless for those specific peppered moments, yeah. like the un Under the Sea song, for example, I'll give it to them. That was vibrant and colourful, uh -huh. but it felt at odds with the look at the film that Rob Marshall was set out to make because it was quite dark and gritty and, you know, you're literally under the ocean and you can't really see much and therefore you lose clarity and depth, for lack of a better word, and, and vibrancy, which I think was a mistake. I think was a, a real mistake in visually realising this film i think it goes back to what you were saying though in that yes it's in the real world but you literally have fantastical sort of characters flounder i don't want to talk about because it sounded like it was voice acted by a kid so i don't want to be too harsh but this the the look of flounder wasn't great and he didn't really <laughs> i was like poor flounder where's his little chubby ch i don't know like they could have had fun with it yeah for sure like half human half fish come on you know, it's not like anyone is going to be there pointing fingers. Actually, they wouldn't look like that. We are beyond the realms of reality yeah. at this point. Go in. Yeah. Go in. Yeah. Paint a different ocean. Make it more vibrant. Just anything, really. 
yeah. you had a you had a whole canvas for yourself and you just decided to well plop fantastical elements in a real love ocean and just go with it you know it actually serves as a bit of a disservice from my perspective where disney is so well known for how they animate and bring to life their characters mm. in their animated films and to then bring that into the quote-unquote live-action world, they just strip all the character or all the nuance to it and they just try and make it too photorealistic. And you mentioned The Lion King before. I still get angry thinking about the (laughs) live-action quote-unquote remake of that damn film because it was like watching a singing, dancing David Attenborough documentary. It was bizarre. There was no character, no liveliness no nuance to how these animated, because uh, they're not fucking live action, they're animated, right? Yeah. These animated characters were interacting and talking with each other. And I think Flounder, although great voice work from Jacob Tremblay, I didn't feel that cuteness yeah. that, that we got out of Flounder in the animated film. I think um, this also brings, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but it brings to layers of like having sub versus dub, you know, in that if you were to have something in its original non-English language, the voice acting naturally has like a lot of layers. If you're talking about like Hayao Miyazaki, Studio Ghibli, for example, even though I do love Christian Bale as Hal, I will concede that. (laughs) But then when you put it into the English dub, it loses a lot of the layer of, of, I guess, voice acting. And I guess that's kind of what I would relate to animated to this sort of live action that for whatever reason, it loses all of the, the layering of a character by removing that sort of color by in, I guess, in virtue of making it more realistic. Oh, it's such a beautiful comparison. And weirdly, I had actually recently watched Howl's Moving Castle for the first time. And I found a lot of confusion in the story and some of the character motivations. And I brought it down to the English dubbing of it, right? The interpretation of the native language into English. And I thought some of this stuff just feels odd and bizarre and at odds with itself and it doesn't quite make sense. And you're so right in terms of when you've got a visual comparison, it it offers the same thing when you try and do something so different to it, it just loses the layers, like you said. Yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible, but something does get lost. And I think for however we feel is however we feel about the little mermaid, but Definitely while we were watching it, I was like, there's definitely been some learning since Lion King. <laughs> like, you know, that it felt a bit, not necessarily established, but it felt a bit more positioned as opposed to the earlier sort of offerings, which makes sense, right? You're slowly going to build on what live action looks like. I don't know if we'll ever figure out who the audience is age-wise. Um, <laughs> mm. The, the colouring, absolutely agree, but there was something, it was executed a lot better than The Lion King, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, the Lion King was a mess. Uh, and The <laughs> yeah. Little Mermaid really, when, when you compare it to the other Disney live action remakes, is one of the better ones, mm-hmm. I, I feel, just giving it a benefit of the doubt, even though there is quite a lot of uh, layers to this movie that the three of us are critiquing, but I think they're important to call out. Is there anything else on story or the script that you want to talk about, or can we dive into the characters and performances of the film? This might go into characters, but there was something that OT said that I kind of want to touch on and I want to draw on your experience of recently watching the animated one. Sure. So Ariel, and I think, I think this is important messaging for all young girls, kids, but young girls around the world that they should be able to safely explore the world in a way that makes sense, you know, in a way Mm -hmm. to build character and identity. It's so important. And in this film, in the live action film, it talks about, you know, her not necessarily understanding the potential danger as much as she is more open to interacting with the humans. She wasn't living at a time where, you know, there was a lot of heartbreak in in regards to her mother. Right. Mm. And the way that they explored this in the film, it felt very much she saw the humans for five seconds and she automatically was like, I'm in. She's thirsty. She is thirsty. And it's like, sis, Eric isn't even that great. Like, look two guys over. I'm sure you'll be fine. Like, like Eric needs to be so devastatingly handsome that I'm not thinking about the vegetables rotting at the back of my fridge. He needs to be that level of handsome, you know? But that's the crux, right? So with Little Mermaid, you have very little storyline to go with. So when you're adapting it 
to live action, mm. it almost presents an opportunity to create your own stuff around it. So it feels as if Errol is driven with a purpose to walk on land so badly rather yeah. than just, oh man, ugga, ugga, you know? Because that, yeah. that's how it boiled <laughs> down to. It's not that, oh, because the king mentions, oh, your mother was taken by humans. That should be the motivation. I, I wouldn't fault Errol for bringing King Monga energy towards that. Oh, I hate humans, you know? But we got nothing of that. It's like she didn't even care, really. It's more, oh, I'm just bored with the sea. Damn, look at Eric. You know? <laughs> and I just felt, come on now. But she was we sheltered. Can... She didn't understand. But that's kind of what I want to know from you, Tim, watching the animated. Was it as, I guess, OT quoting him, thirsty? Was she as thirsty? <laughs> look, I kind of agree to disagree here. So let me try and unpack. So because I watched the animated film and the remake in close succession, I see a different side. I actually found Ariel a bit more goo-goo-eyed, gaga-eyed and thirsty in the animated film because there wasn't a great deal of substance to her as a character as there is in Halle Bailey's iteration uh, of Ariel in this. Because in this film, they delve into more of Ariel's inquisitive nature, her fascination, like her, her yearning to learn about the human world. And it's more about a curiosity for life that I, I found in, in the remake and an exploration than falling for a guy. He simply, Eric in this movie, simply, I see him as a vessel to more knowledge for her. And then it develops into some kind of relationship. Of course, she finds him attractive. A vessel through thrust, yeah. <laughs> a vessel through thrust. Sure. I mean, look, it depends how you take it. But there's a line of dialogue that I want to share that Ariel says in the animated movie where she's literally just seen Eric and having a biff with, with Daddy Triton. Mm -hmm. And she goes, Daddy, I love him. Ariel in the remake doesn't say that she loves Eric after five seconds. So there's a bit of difference there. She kind of loves and yearns for the human world. And Eric is just that catalyst for her because she had some sort of really close, tangible interaction with him after saving him after the shipwreck. So I, can't, I kind of agree to disagree. She is thirsty, but she's thirsty to learn rather than to yearn for a man at the same time. I wonder what the health, like the, the MPHP bar is for using your siren abilities because she used it very generously and i was like can you just like are you just gonna go out reviving people is that just the thing <laughs> i don't know choo choo hop aboard the ss thirst vessel that's what i'm saying can we talk about her using the siren powers because i siren powers is that what you call it are was they that powers? in the animated as well or no yeah. well, well i don't think so yeah. and i j watched it the other day i don't recall her siren abilities playing such a crucial plot point in the animated version. Obviously, she's got a beautiful voice and that plays a significant part in both films where her voice is taken from her. Mm -hmm. But I found that because she then entered the human world after Ursula's spell that she cast on her, that she didn't have a voice, it meant that the relationship that she developed with Eric was more than just that sort of him yearning for that for that siren sound that he heard yeah. and they actually got to develop a bit of a relationship as human beings which then I guess fostered into this love or longing for each other do you agree in some way with that I want to say something spicy please that's very interesting you say that because to me it was a vanity thing for Eric it's like he's literally not learning anything about her just spouting all of his nonsense and his human life and it's like mm -hmm. you're this isn't a real connection that we're building here. You're just saying whatever you want. And she's like, okay, cool. That's great. Here's a little mermaid statue. Great. Cool. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I hear that side. What What about you, OT? Do you have anything to unpack about that? Because I, I find this actually quite interesting. There wasn't really much of a connection. And I, I agree with you in part. In as much as there's this connection with, you know, Eric trying to find Ariel through the siren because... You know, who wouldn't? The aspect where Ariel now is on land and they're like, oh, I just want to learn about you and they spend a lot of time. Katie is right. It's mostly 100% about Eric. Mm. There's no correlation with it. Oh, other than Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> other than that, <laughs> she doesn't really bring... <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't really bring anything else in it. And, and that's why I'm like, okay, so 
you're we're supposed to buy into this love. You spent all this time learning about Eric. You've not he doesn't really know anything about you. Yeah. You know, so mm. even when they're fighting, when Asola came on land and Errol's like, oh, I'm gonna try and get my my voice back. And they're fighting. I was like, this feels a bit weird. Mm. And people just stood off and watched it and happen. I'm like, <laughs> it felt as if Eric didn't know exactly why he loved Ariel outside of Ariel's looks. Because OT yeah. the feminist, friends and lovers. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you say that at the party, that's where it felt even more like an episode of Bridgerton mm. because they're all just gas bagging and socializing <laughs> around and watching the drama yeah. go on between these <laughs> triangle of lovers. I, I had a bit of a lull to myself. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. About that now, what, what did we think of Halle Bailey's performance? Not only her acting, but also her voice performance as Ariel in this. Whoa, I don't think they would have casted anyone better that looked and performed the way Haley did. Mm-hmm. I think she was the brightest spot of the movie yeah. for me when she was singing "Part of the World" and just oh my, yeah. like you got chills. I think oh, yeah. she. I got them now. <laughs> she was really, really good. And I did not see this performance coming, really. Mm-hmm. Katie usually tries to say that I have a lot of black tacks when I watch stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> you could take it with a grain of salt. But I think, wow, I was blown away. It's just sad that it had to happen in this movie that we got to see her. Because I think the story was just a bit eh, not, not, not that good. I absolutely agree. Haley was the one to bring it home. I guess the broader question is, can her spectacular, thrilling performances carry a movie? You know, that's mm-hmm. the bigger question. But if we're talking about her, her performances, you know, as they say in the industry and beyond, no notes. Gorgeous, gorgeous, amazing. Yeah, I found her utterly mesmerizing. And I think that without her or her caliber of her performance, Mm. her authentic betrayal of Ariel, I think that this film would have floundered a little more. Pardon the pun, pardon the pun. Isn't that what you say, (laughs) KT, in in for your reference a lot? I think she was the perfect piece of casting as well. Her voice was insane. Mm. She made those iconic songs her own, which is no mean feat because they've been out in the culture zeitgeist for 34 years. That's a long time for people to know and know and know a song Mm -hmm. and then for it to also feel fresh uh, when put into the talents of someone else. So that was impressive. And I was actually tearing up for one of the reprises of part of your world towards the end when she realizes that Eric has chosen Vanessa over her. It was just really, really, really powerful stuff. And you wouldn't have gotten there unless you had experienced her performance and her portrayal of Ariel up until that point, because that was almost one of the most crucial moments in the film. And, and, and it came from her and it could have only come from her. But I think it's the benchmark, right? Haley's mm. voice and everything she brought to the role is the benchmark. So bring the animation, bring the colors, bring the aesthetic, bring yep. the storyline up. That's where it should have been. I completely agree. Now, let's see if if we think that Ursula's Sea Witch, that was brought to where we expected it to be from Melissa McCarthy. I thought she was camp brilliance. I was actually really surprised by her vocal performance. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't think she could sing. I was surprised. Have we ever heard her sing before? I can't think of a film where Melissa McCarthy has actually sung. 
Yeah, I can't and, think of either. And we love Chiwetel Ejiofor, but he was he was not he was giving nothing as Scar in Lion King. So comparing <laughs> the villains in this one, <laughs> Melissa McCarthy, yeah, absolutely. What about her look? Because did you know that I only found this out the other day that Ursula in the animated film is a squid. She's not an octopus. So that is a change in character between the animated version and the remake. Literally splitting tentacles, right? <laughs> Who even has the time? I thought you were going to talk about how it was based on the um, drag queen divine. I oh, yes. <laughs> I didn't realize oh, going to the tentacle, um, you know, splitting. I counted head. six in the animation yeah. and she had eight in the remake. <laughs> but I think Please overall, explain. what does that do? Like, even just knowing that, I don't know if that makes or breaks. I think she looked quite interesting as a character. Um, you thought her makeup was enough? Yeah. Mm. You didn't? Well. What's in your hair? Well, I think if we're talking about, like, if it wasn't meaning like aesthetics and coloring and stuff. Um, mm. And this is just like a little baby thing. Cause I think Disney, it, it's not of, of want of money. You can tell the production was money. It was great. They spent a lot of time focusing on how things would look under the ocean, but mm. a lot of the characters were like sitting a lot, especially Ursula. <laughs> and I, I yeah. feel like, as much as there was money, maybe it's a technological thing because she kept like, like leaning on boulders and like leaning <laughs> on rocks and like sliding upside down. And I'm like, is that part of the character? Oh, I don't know. That was very distracting to me. <laughs> yeah, look, it, that, I felt that especially when we were first introduced by her. I thought, are we going to experience Ursula upside down most of the movie? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I liken it to. Um, Sandra Bullock's performance in in The Lost City, where mm. she basically kept falling over in the movie, you know, a la Miss Congeniality, walking across the airport tarmac. It just drove me mad. It's like <laughs> she was just stumbling and in wheelbarrows and just being all, you know, quirky and whatever. And I was just, let the woman stand. Yeah. So I, I've, I felt the same with Ursula. I thought, just can she either sit up straight for a second or like just <laughs> swim using those tentacles? Where's her core strength? I think we've got a new um, podcast spinoff idea now. What is it? Let the women stand. <laughs> <laughs> Let the women stand. <laughs> one spinoff at a time, Katie, <laughs> one spinoff at a time. All right, can we talk about David Diggs' vocal performances, Sebastian? I loved what he brought from a character perspective. I loved the energy, the quirkiness, the sort of personal sides that he would have to himself, just uttering things. I really grew to like David's version of Sebastian in this movie. Oh, same here. He he brought the hijinks to the movie. I think a lot of the time, I actually didn't even know it was David doing Sebastian, but even his performance in Under the Sea was, wow, brilliant mm. stuff. And Him I, not being Caribbean isn't a problem? No, not really. All right. Do you think it's a problem? What happened to the black tax? It disappeared. <laughs> He's black. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, true, true. Yeah, he was great. Like, and I, um, especially was Tim saying a lot of like the fun sort of relief was through Sebastian's character. He wasn't necessarily, you know, how you have like a character that says or channels what the audience is thinking. I think I think that was more Aquafina's character. Scuttle, Scuttle yes, mm. thank you. But yeah, Sebastian. I think Sebastian is like everyone's fan fave. The same way like Mushu would be everyone's fan fave. And definitely delivered in this live action. Are we talking Mushu in Mulan or Mushu, my dog? Of all. <laughs> of Mushu all. made an appearance all already. All Mushus yeah. in the world. <laughs> uh, now, you referenced Scuttle before. So they are voiced by Awkwafina, mm. the all-knowing, know-nothing seagull. What did you think of her vocal performance and their involvement in the story? She cannot sing for anything. Oh my, I thought, it felt like the chipmunks performing. I was like, come on. And then the the rap was the most cringe thing I've ever heard. I was like, oh, oh, bloody hell. Of course now you're going to rap because why not? Because why not? Because Lin-Manuel Miranda had his fingerprints all over this movie. And it actually really, really bothered me that there was a rap in there. The Little Mermaid does not need a rap, a rap number, a two-minute rap number with a seagull and a crab. And, and before we started recording, Katie was like, oh, you know, Lynn Mar- manuel Miranda was like, of course, of course he's <laughs> the one that wrote that rap. Skitter! Oh, cringe, cringe, cringe. 
See, so my thing is, my favorite Aquafina is the farewell. Is Nora from Queen? Beautiful movie. Yeah, the more earnest sort of performances. I understand there's a whole persona, even Raya and the Last Dragon. There's another mm. movie that she's also in as well that's escaping me. But like, she everywhere, which is cool. But I kind of draw into that sort of earnest sort of performances. But you know, even Tim can talk to the fact that the crowd was eating her up. <laughs> but the reaction to the rap was just uncomfortable laughter. Did you get that really? vibe as well? People didn't really know what to do with that moment in the movie. I thought they were having fun. Really? Oh, really? Maybe oh, okay. I was just manifesting awkwardness to everybody else because that's what oh, I was Oh, no, I felt awkward as well. I didn't know what to do at that point. I was like, oh, of course, <laughs> nearing the two-hour mark, we get a rap. And I was like, oh, bloody hell. It could not get any cringer than that at that moment. We basically touched on Javier Bardem as King Triton or Daddy Triton earlier, but what did you think of his, I guess, more human performance in this? Because we got to, I guess, understand some of the motivations to his character choices and why he wanted to keep Ariel safe. Did you like his performance and how his character played out here? The way that the plot was structured was... Yes, absolutely. You know, I even said it before, like, I feel like young girls should be able to explore the world in a safe way, right? Mm. And not in a gross, like, they need to be safe, as in the world, they need to be protected from parts of the world. But in the same token, he wasn't that overbearing, controlling dad. He had grounded experience, the same as the sisters as well, right? Mm. Where he was just trying to keep her safe from things that he didn't want her to experience, but sometimes you don't know unless you experience and you understand the world a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that cliche of a, a father wanting to protect his daughter, but he had foundations of where that heightened layer of protection was coming from, which was actually lacking in the animated film. I just found Triton a bit of a dick and like quite angry and aggressive. And I think that we got a more human King Triton here that you understood him more. So that that was a definite improvement on on the story from from my take on it. Do you think his um CG costume looked weird? It felt weird. I think his crown just looked like sh- rotten shark tooth or something. And then <laughs> like even when he when he saw this stuff, I was like, it, it, it felt a bit off. I, I, I did I did, was that just me? No, we're talking about the intricacies of fatherhood and you're worried about his rotten shark tooth. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to back you up here. No, I, I thought he, his look was great. Specifically that fabulous fish cape that he wore at the beginning of the movie. I was like, damn, get on that catwalk, Triton. That looked fantastic. I actually quite liked that element of his costume. That's why he's got so many bibbers. Because <laughs> of that cape. Because <laughs> of that cape. Yeah, he did have a lot of daughters. I actually hadn't oh, oh, different put two races. Two together uh, on that. I guess. Um... He's Sandman, the Netflix Sandman. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen that show. What's that reference if you can help me join the dots? So, like, characters are seen as how you perceive them to be. That's why they're all different races. <laughs> ah, gotcha. <laughs> well, he, he, he's been swimming around the seven seas, that's for sure. Yeah. all seven fins of them yeah (laughs) now i want to touch on the the music obviously the iconic Mm. songs and the music we've kind of talked about part of your world in relation to Halle bailey's beautiful performance i really really appreciated the beautiful new orchestral arrangements of that iconic score especially when we're introduced down under the sea for the first time and we see the kingdom it was really beautiful and also i felt very nostalgic ot uh during (laughs) during that moment as well got me in the nostalgic feels how did you guys like the music and maybe specifically the new songs because it's it's always a challenge with an iconic musical and when you have an hour more story to pat out <laughs> you need to throw into some new songs how did you think they weighed up against the classics i love the music i think the only one that i didn't really care for was eric's song mm. and i'm not sure that was that an original that was wasn't an part original. of the animated no it's it new it shows <laughs> it shows <laughs> yeah look it's it's so hard right to take on the near impossible task of writing new songs for a musical that is so well known for Mm. its songs. So even though I agree, I don't think they hit the mark, I still appreciated that they offered 
some more character depth and some story depth to them as well. So them being in there was needed to help make sense of things a little more that the animated film just doesn't even bother about. But they stood out like a sore thumb because they weren't. I'm not humming them right now. I'm not humming them as I've left the movie, if that gives you an indication. I think Under the Sea was the closest love letter to the original that this film got to. Mm. And even though I think when Under the Sea started, I think you you started bumping and jumping. I, in the, I loved it. Yeah. Just you like know? I was in Fast X. Like it just, <laughs> it's, it's um your best friend, Tim, Nicole Kidman, the cinema. Yeah. The cinema. It, but it brings something. It, it brings something to the watching experience, especially when it comes to the music. Yeah. Mm. I was feeling it. I was bumping around. Let's talk about some of the aesthetics of the film. We've already talked about the color grading and things, but mm. do we want to talk about the production design and maybe the costumes? Did they stand out and offer something special for you guys? I just love Haley's hair. I think throughout, <laughs> like the the hairography, there should be a category. I know there's so many different categories. They talk about like needing a stunt category for the John Wick franchise, but her hair was great, <laughs> like throughout. Mm. I just love the way, especially when you talk about productions and the lack of or no care for you know black talent to have her hair and have so much considered detail to her character and who she is and what it means to have a young black woman as the little mermaid. Like it, it, it's things that matter because they matter because they're so small and they matter. It, it would have been weird them going into this and not giving Haley the production budget she needed for her hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been scandalous. Because I actually would like to see that line item on the $250 million budget for, <laughs> you know, the hair, hair motion because everyone's hair un- under the sea was utterly convincing and that kind of builds into the, even though they were, I guess, sitting a lot or laying horizontal, if you're Ursula, mm-hmm. I was convinced by the movement underwater of of these actors. And, and I don't think you would have been able to achieve that look only a few years ago when it comes yeah. to special yeah. effects, right? But like, so there was so much detail into the, the movement and the natural flow of like hair. But didn't you feel like their faces were a bit too dry down there? Yeah, well, I mean, they had some shimmer on the shoulders and some yeah. little like, glow and stuff. Like, to be honest, that didn't bother me so much. It, it bothered you. It took you out of the fact that, oh, are they under the water? In some moments, it kind of felt like it was just them in a dark basement and they put a spotlight on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, maybe I'll need to go watch and go watch some David Attenborough like documentaries, but I would imagine there would be some sort of movement or shifting of the face. If there's so much detail to the hair, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just like, they got some dry ass faces. They need to moisturize. Digital moisturizing budgets will go through the roof now after Disney hear, hear that critique. They'll, they'll add that. Uh, and we'll see that moving forward. I stay moisturized. Hire me, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Chief Moisturize Officer. Love it. That's your title at Disney. Love it. <laughs> oh, that could be taken a lot of different ways. <laughs> no, only only between us. Only between us. We've got some things to work out after, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> just like the remake of Little Mermaid, is it for adults or is it for kids? Just like this conversation that's happening right now. <laughs> PG or... NC-17, you decide. Is there anything that you want to uh, talk about further that's that's on the tip of your tongue or should we wrap up and rate our take on The Little Mermaid? I just wished that we could have gotten a Haley Bailey performance elevated by everything else around her, like Katie said earlier. The dynamic between Eric and the mother, you know, some things just felt a bit forced, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, she's a black woman, you know, right? Cool. We're in there. Eric, of course, the, <laughs> he's adopted. Like, it just felt weird. For it whatever. didn't need to be that entangled. Yeah. 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 They, they ran themselves rugged writing that. Yeah, I agree. It's like a, it's a hangover from having a film that went on for an extra hour and they thought, oh, let's just add this. Let's talk about that. Let's add that detail or nuance. But then they never give it the room that it needed for it to add that sort of complexity to it. So at times, yeah, it did feel at odds with itself and what it was trying to do from a 
tone and story perspective. I agree. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed this experience, being able to discuss and dissect. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it was a moment in time. I think that's a different reference to another Disney film. <laughs> but yeah, I had a great time with it. And, you know, it's it's great to be able to discuss stuff. But overall, yeah, it was a great experience. All right. Well, in my wrap up, so The Little Mermaid is an example of how you can almost get the formula right with a remake. Authentically capturing moments from the animated classic, this reimagining takes great care in building up characters and plot for a more rounded story. The colour grading was overall too dull and needed more vibrancy, and the emotionless animals will continue to haunt and perplex me in Disney's live-action Rampage. I have still not recovered from The Lion King, and The Little Mermaid has further dumbfounded me as to why this trend continues. A poor, unfortunate, soulless remake No, it delivers in many ways and is one of the better live-action remakes of the bunch and I did enjoy it myself too, KT, but it suffered under its runtime and its visual choices and I'm going to rate The Little Mermaid three popcorn kernels out of five. That's where I am on the fence. What what would you rate it, team? (laughs) I'm putting you on the spot. Definitely a missed love letter to the original. I wish that it could have been more Haley Bailey- outshone her performances in this and for that reason i'll give it a 3.5 popcorn carnals oh five on it more trinkets less scuttle three out of five (laughs) sometimes it's best to keep it short and sweet everyone knows what you mean well the little mermaid is in australian cinemas from may 25 and that's it for the very first episode of popcorn pals i was joined by kt and ot from for your reference podcast guys where can people find you out there in podcast land well if you're tim we'll find you at a screening very soon (laughs) i know the back of that head (laughs) (laughs) otherwise on twitter and instagram we're at for your f pod or you can write us an email at hello at fypodcast.com Thank you so much. I've loved talking to you. I'm so thrilled that you agreed to be my very first pals on this spin-off series. I can't wait to have you on again. So we'll have to think of another movie that's coming out in the next couple of months and bring you back on, lure you back in. <laughs> With your siren abilities. Yes. Oh, actually, you do not want me to sing. I'm going to stop it there. <laughs> and as always, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Come and join in on the conversation. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Popcorn Podcast. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.